if you're developing interpretability method, you have to check with the users. You develop the method for humans, you need to check with humans. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 53 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Bean Kim, who's a research scientist at Google Brain in the San Francisco Bay Area. We'll discuss her research into classifying images based on high-level human concepts using machine learning in order to both assist standard image classification as well as to aid experts in medical imaging applications. Here's Bean Kim. Hello, my name is Bean Kim. I am a senior research scientist here at Google Brain Mountain View. I came from South Korea, came to MIT in 2017, uh, sorry, 2007, and began my graduate studies at CSAIL, Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. I think I took a pretty interesting uh, route to get to where I am and, and from MIT to Google. I actually grew up as a mechanical engineer. When I was in fourth grade, I saw NASA's Pathfinder mission to, to Mars, and I realized that's something that I wanted to do. So I went to college thinking robotics or making this smart, beautiful machines is all about making the body of the robot. What I didn't realize, because it wasn't quite common at that time, at least nobody around me knew that there is this thing called computer science that I can make the brain of the robot. So I came to MIT and realized, oh, there is this computer science and artificial intelligence that can do perhaps a lot more magical things with the smart machines and helping people's lives. And that's that's computer science making the brain of the robot that I really wanted to do. So I switched to computer science. And when I began my studies, I thought this is the time that I could do whatever I want. Right, because as you may know, the graduate student salary in the United States is quite low. And I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna do whatever I want. And I thought deeply about what do I want to do? How do I want to spend time in my life? And at the end of the day, my last day, what do I want to look back and think, uh, think about myself and what I did to the world? And I thought, I want to do something useful. I want to do something that helped the world. So that I can think back and say, oh, you know what? I was net positive. Spending time on a career, developing a career, developing algorithm, doing something was helpful to somebody in the world. Studying computer science at MIT's graduate school could have taken Bean in many directions with her career. So we asked how it was that she got interested in machine learning. Well, uh, it was a time when machine learning was on, on the rise. And everyone started to pay attention, at least in academia. And I realized, oh, this powerful tool is going to change the world. Then I asked people around me, how does this work? Do we know how this, this machine classifies this as a cat, this is, this is a dog? And nobody was able to answer that question. And it was obvious to me then that this powerful tool is going to change the world, sometimes making high-risk decisions such as medical uh, diagnosis, legal decisions, and we don't understand how it works. That sounds like a big problem. So I devoted my graduate studies to answer that question, or at least beginning to in investigate that direction, and that's called interpretability. 
can we take this black box and explain it in a way that regular people who don't have computer science degree, but perhaps hold critical knowledge about the domain, whether that's legal or medical, that they can understand how this machine is making decisions. And that's all I've been doing ever since. In machine learning, many systems, such as image recognition and classification, operate on low-level features in the images, rather than high-level concepts which humans use to think about things. So Bean and her colleagues developed concept activation vectors, or CAVs, to provide an interpretation of an algorithm's internal state in terms of human-friendly concepts. They expanded this approach to testing with CAVs, or TCAVs, so as to quantify the degree to which a user-defined concept is important to a classification result. We asked her how these relate to her interest in interpretability. Well, there are different types of interpretability methods. The TCAV is one of them. What do I mean by that? So you can train a machine learning model at training time to ensure that you can always understand the results. Uh, let's call it type one interpretability method. It's about building inherently interpretable model. Now, TCAV is actually not that kind. TCAV is the second kind, which is assume that you have a model that somebody already trained, maybe you did, maybe some other engineer did, maybe it's in production. You can't change the model. You just don't have the power. But still, you want to understand how the model is making decision. This is called post hoc interpretability methods, type two, let's call it. So TCAV is about the second kind. Do you have a model? You're not going to do anything with the model. Can you detect biases or or how explain the model's decision in, in concepts that you're interested in that's not necessarily have to be biased. So TCAP is about detection, not about fixing, per se. Machine learning algorithms, including those used in image classification, are often seen as black boxes in the sense that we can often only observe its inputs and outputs, but not the internal workings. So we asked Bean what motivated her to think that it was even possible to open up algorithms of black boxes to end users. My ultimate goal when I started developing this method was to care for lay people. Lay people meaning someone who doesn't have computer science degree. Why? Well, first reason is that you need doctors and legal experts to understand machine learning models. That's when interpretability really matters. It's not when you're predicting movies, what next to watch. It's those high-risk applications that interpretability will matter the most. So that's first uh, reason why I uh, focused on lay users. Second is that I grew up in Korea, where computer science wasn't really a thing when I grew up there. And I wasn't privileged to use this powerful tool in a way that a lot of people probably was already using. And I don't want that to happen again in this powerful tool called machine learning. I think even if you don't have computer science degree, even if you didn't go to college, you should be able to use this powerful tool to help you do your job better. And using this tool safely and responsibly requires understanding how this tool works. So the interpretability methods had to make sense to everyone, no matter what your background is. And that's where I started TCAV work, really, to explain in a way using high-level concepts so that 
anybody can use concepts that make sense to them, not to me, the computer scientist. And if you think about it, TCAV is a very simple method. And it's a basic framework where the core value is about helping lay user understand machine learning. While machine learning algorithms have myriad applications, both now and into the future, at the moment, CAVs seem to Doug and I as perhaps rather esoteric to most people, ourselves included. So we asked Bean to describe what one might look like and how they're trained. If you're familiar with embeddings, uh, by which I mean just a bunch of numbers, long vectors that is in the middle of a neural network, so neural network representation is another way to call it. And this is sort of how neural network sees the world. But to humans, you can't understand the, the numbers. It, it's just a bunch of numbers. It's a one vector. It, once, you can, uh, once you understand this embedding space, the, what I'm about to say might make more sense. The CAV is a concept activation vector. And this vector, intuitively speaking, represents a direction of a particular concept. How do I learn this vector? Well, let's say you want to learn gender concept. Uh, now, for the convenience, let's just consider gender is a binary concept, although it's not. If you want to learn the gender concept, then you first pre create some positive examples for, say, one gender, let's say woman uh, or female. That, that's kind of all you need. Now, now, once you have the positive examples, you randomly sample negative examples, so something that's not female. Then you input those examples into neural neural network, gather all the embeddings. Remember, these are the vectors that's sitting in the middle of the neural network architecture. These are just numbers. You gather those embeddings of those input, let's say input images. Once you have those embeddings of, let's say, 50 images, then you train a linear classifier that can separate the positive examples from negative examples. Now, this linear classifier is just simply separating a bunch of embeddings of female and a bunch of embeddings of something that's not female. Then you're kind of done. Uh, you get the vector orthogonal to the decision boundary of this linear classifier. And what is this vector? Well, that vector just points from something that's not female embeddings to something female embeddings. And that's your CAV. That's your concept activation vector that represents the concept female. We followed up by asking Bean to describe how the T, testing, works with CAVs to improve the interpretability of deep learning models and what it is that TCAV scores can tell us. We'll hear what she had to say after this short break. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like Parsing Science's new project, Science Pods. Science Pods is a curated collection of episodes from other podcasts that are handpicked for people interested in science. You can explore new science shows that will inform your research, guide your career, or maybe make you laugh at the absurdities of scientific life. You can subscribe at sciencepods.com. That's sciencepods.com. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here again is Bean Kim. Now, CAV is one ingredient to TCAV. Uh, testing with concept activation vectors, the ultimate score that you want. TCAV assumes that you have a classifier that you want to investigate. It's already trained. To learn TCAV, let's just may have an example. Let's say you have a classifier that determines whether your picture has a doctor in it or not. Now, you're interested in whether the gender concept mattered in this decision. In other words, 
Did it matter that it happens to be a woman doctor in this picture? Does it make classifier's decision different? So to do this, you need two things. One, you need examples of this concept you're interested in investigating, in this case, female pictures. It doesn't have to be female, the female doctor pictures. It can be just any female pictures. And you need some images of your doctor class. So this could be any of your training data. Then next step is to learn CAV, concept activation vectors. So the way to learn CAV is you simply put these female images as if it's an input to that classifier, gather embeddings in this neural network, in this classifier. Embeddings are just simply vectors in the middle of a neural network, just a bunch of numbers. Once you gather those embeddings of female images, you train a linear classifier that separates these female images from any other random images. And once you have that classifier, the vector that is orthogonal to the decision boundary is the CAV, concept activation vectors for a concept. So now you have the CAV for female. Next step is to test how much this concept female mattered for your final decision, whether it was doctor or not a doctor. To do this, you simply take directional derivative of the logit layer of doctor with respect to the vector that you just got, the female calf. And think about direction, directional derivative as if any other simple derivative that you will take. Intuitively, what derivatives do is doing sensitivity testing. In, in other words, if I change these doctor pictures a little more like female or a little less like female, how much would the score for doctor or the prediction of the doctor change. If it changes a lot, it's an important concept. If it doesn't change, then the concept isn't that important. And TCAP score, final TCAP score reflects how important this concept was to a prediction class, in this case, doctor. For a machine to learn to classify data sets according to concepts that are relevant to people, these computational algorithms often have to first be trained using data that has been accurately labeled or tagged by humans. For example, visually similar medical images from past patients, such as tissue from biopsies, may be used as reference images to train a machine learning model so that it can later be used to assist doctors in making medical diagnoses with new patients. This is called supervised learning. We asked Bean if she and her colleagues have made any progress on developing unsupervised TCAVs to find the structure of data that does not rely on training data previously labeled by people. So the point here is that you're a doctor, you have concept, medical concepts that you were trained from medical school, have a lot of experience over many years. Now we want the model to explain its results using those concepts, those medical concepts that make sense to doctors. So those concepts that used in the paper were collected by the doctors, and they chose what machine, what kind of language the machine's gonna speak. Machines don't get to choose what kind of language they're gonna speak. So depending on the application, you can choose other different medical concepts. So for example, in the TCAF paper, we used diabetic retinopathy as an example. We talked to doctors who are experts in detecting diabetic retinopathy, and she gave us the concepts. She said, I, I need, I look at these medical concepts. Now tell me how model is using these concepts. So for the paper, we empirically saw a very small number of examples were sufficient. 
I don't remember exactly which number it was, but it, it was around 33. In other application, we saw only 15 examples were enough. So that's encouraging. But we have a follow-up work that's on archive right now that's called Discovery TCAV. This is, instead of you giving us the concepts, we will try to discover automatically. And this work only works for images right now. We simply try to do some efficient search on potentially consistent concept in your pictures, and it works pretty well. So that's, if you don't know which concepts to start with, then DTCAV might be a venue for you. And there are a lot of Google Teams using TCAV internally right now. And I was shocked how quickly they were able to grasp the concept, develop their own concepts, and just run with it. So very short period of time, like less than a month, given like this, these are full-time engineers have other job to do, but they're doing TCAP on the side, or, or some people are doing it as a full-time. We had a couple of sprints, meaning just like short period of uh, hackathon type of things with a couple of teams here at Google. And they were also able to achieve something that's presentable within two weeks. But again, you know, if... Uh, a brand new domain appears, I would have to learn about the domain as well to ensure effective, most effective and safe use of TCAV. So that might take a little longer. Developing and testing machine learning applications often incorporates combinations of examples, non-examples, and borderline examples of the concepts that the machine learning algorithm is being trained to identify. Ryan and I were interested in hearing how these borderline or edge cases, sometimes called adversarial examples if they're used as part of a stress test of the algorithm's robustness, can be applied in TCAVs. I think the adversarial examples are useful in revealing that edge cases. However, the challenge is that some of these edge cases, if humans cannot distinguish them from non-edge cases, then what's the point, right? I give you two pictures and I say, one picture, machine learning is confident it's a panda. This is the other picture. Machine learning model doesn't think it's a panda, it's something else. But if humans can tell the difference, what kind of intuition humans are learning by looking at that example, right? In high level, I think the concept of adversarial examples are extremely useful in revealing vulnerabilities of your model when things can go wrong. In fact, we think about how robust is an interpretability method to such an adversarial attack. And we actually have a, a paper submission on that very specific issue. Um, however, because the neural network, the way the neural network views the world and human sees the world is very different. So bridging that gap and extracting into information of adversarial examples such that it gives insights to humans, that's a big challenge. But all right, let's say you were trying to uh, draw a dog. The benefit of CAV is that you can give it an example of your dog, the way that you draw the dogs, or examples of someone like an artist trying, trying to draw the dog or someone from Korea trying to draw the dog. You can, whatever example you give, it will try to learn what you mean. You gave some examples and it, you got a vector, a calf, but how do you know that that calf really represents what you think the concept should be? Um, and that's, that's probably going too much technical detail, but we have a safeguard mechanism 
basically doing some statistical testing on what you gave me and some other random concept calf to ensure that we're not giving you some calf that happens to be sensitive or happens to give some TCAV score, but something that's more robust, something that is definitely not a spurious correlation or most likely not spurious correlation. So I guess high level takeaway here is that we have some safeguard uh, mechanism to ensure that the example that you gave us is something meaningful to the network. One of the applications Bean and her colleagues tested calves on was in the domain of diabetic retinopathy, or DR, which involves evaluating photographs of patients' retinas to determine the severity of diabetes progression in those suffering from the disease. I think it's crucial for any interpretability method to check with your final user. Your final user can be doctors or maybe uh, a lay user or Turkers. In any case, I think if you're developing interpretability method, you have to check with the users. You develop the method for humans, you need to check with humans. Numbers only are not enough. So for the diabetic retinopathy example that TCAP paper presents, I worked with an expert who uh, works at Google Brain, Medical Brain, who can scan these eyeball images, they call it retina images. It's like an image of back of your eyeballs. Who can scan that those images very quickly and, and diagnose, oh, this patient is DR level 1, DR level 2, DR level 5, and so on. And so I met her and explained what we have. And she was super excited because she said, oh, now the machine speaks my language. I don't have to speak its language. Now it's speaking to me in a way that I can understand. So we work with her to validate that the information TCAV is giving is useful to decide whether to deploy the model or not. And at the end of our sessions, she said, so now I can talk to the machine in the way that I understand. Can I train the machine again? Like, Can I give it an input? Because in this and that example, I don't think it's doing it right. I can kind of try to correct it as if teacher teaching a student. And that was sort of what led to follow-up work here at Google to enable that feedback loop. It's not a complete work yet, but that's also a potentially very interesting direction. But uh, one thing that, that I really jumped out at me was that doctors were able to learn what the model can do and cannot do, which is extremely important point. So right now we think that machines can do a lot of things. It's magic. It's like giving you the, you can play chess better than humans. But the fact is that machines are not perfect, just like humans are not perfect. Knowing and understanding when it might fail is extremely important, perhaps more important than when it works right, to, to, to use the machine learning safely and more responsibly. The analogy is suggesting that an artificial neural network is like a computational equivalent of the human brain as a tempting one, though in reality, the human brain is far more complex and less well understood. Ryan and I were curious about Bean's perspective on the extent to which neural networks accurately mimic the human brain and how this might relate to her research into interpretability. People make a lot of analogies between human neural networks and human brain. The right answer is we don't know <laughs> because we don't understand how human brain really works. 
we don't understand how human developmental phases really work. It's this is active、uh, field of research. But if I have to guess,、uh, based on what I've seen, I think they're pretty different. There might be some similarities, but different enough that it requires a set of studies designed to target those differences. So. Very recently, I tried to ask a classical psychology question to a neural network, and that is the Gestalt phenomenon. There are lots of different definitions, but the one that we focused on was what they call law of closure. So, if I show you a triangle where some edges are missing, humans cannot help but seeing a full triangle. It's a strong phenomenon for humans. We cannot help not doing it. And I wondered, does a neural network does the same thing? Does it know how to close the gap? And I basically borrowed the classical experimental framework that psychologists used to do in like sixties, seventies, and used it with some modification to ask the same question to neural network. And the answer was yes, it does do it. So, so the way that I think about this interpretability work is the way I think about languages. So I speak two languages, Korean and English. And I know that there are some words in Korean that I cannot translate to English. For example, there's this word called "chung," which means this warm, fuzzy feeling about someone that you care. But it's not really love. It's like something that lasting, fuzzy feeling. And I have no idea how to. There's no word in English for that. And I, when I, whenever I think about neural network and translating what it thinks to humans, I think in similar terms. So we may not be able to find the exact match because we are just different. But the fact that I can speak two languages pretty effectively shows that there's hope that we can still translate between these two odd species, humans and machines, so that we can do better, do our job better. We can leverage this powerful tool safely. Over the past several years, it seems that machine learning algorithms have been featured in the popular media. As much for their advancements as they have for striking instances of racial and gender bias. So Doug and I wondered how TCABs might help reduce the influence of bias in machine learning applications. What TCAB offers is you can test any of those biases that you are interested in, and if you have suspicion that maybe you're getting more targeted recommendation than other than what other companies, then you can test it to detect it. Um, what reminds me of that is, is, though, that there's a lot of active work going on. Well, two things. So one is in those cases, in smaller sort of, in terms of scale, smaller biases, what you might want is to use the discovery TCAV to automatically discover the concepts that you're highly sensitive to, because that's more scalable way to just discover what you didn't know before. Second point I want to make is. What media covers is those big cases, but within Google, we actually care about a lot of different scenarios. I was actually pretty surprised that, as a company, people really try to do the right thing here. Because, you know, I, I work here. I'm proud of working here, and I want to do the right thing. And most of the people are nice people. <laughs> they know that they carry great power, and that comes with great responsibility. So lots of different biases or other types of potentially harmful things, skewness that our data or model might have, people look at it. So 
I really like my job. <laughs> I do this work that I care deeply about, and I'm doing it more for society than Google. And I sometimes wonder why they pay me <laughs> in a good way. That was Bean Kim discussing her articles, Interpretability Beyond Feature Attribution, Quantitative Testing with Concept Activation Vectors, and Human-Centered Tools for Coping with Imperfect Algorithms During Medical School Decision-Making. You'll find a link to these papers at parsingscience.org e53, along with bonus audio and other materials that we discussed during the episode. If you enjoyed the first 53 episodes of Parsing Science, consider becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. As a sign of our thanks, you'll get access to hours of unreleased audio from all of our episodes so far, as well as the same for all of our future ones. You'll help us continue to bring you the unpublished stories of researchers from around the globe, while supporting what we hope is one of your favorite science shows. If you're interested in learning more, head over to parsingscience.org support for more information. Next time, in episode 54 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Ida Mahimajad and Ajua Duker from Princeton University and Yale University, respectively. They'll discuss their research into how communication across social networks can optimize information sharing and diminish the likelihood of information bubbles and polarization. People talk to people from other clusters, all of a sudden they get diverse information, all of a sudden they get information that is not reaching the other members of their cluster, so they go further from each other. So even within cluster, their memories become more distant from each other. We hope that you'll join us again.